Section 1 of The Prussian Officer and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kathy Barrett. The Prussian Officer and Other Stories by D. H. Lawrence. The Prussian Officer, Chapter 1. They had marched more than thirty kilometres since dawn along the white hot road where occasional thickets of trees threw a moment of shade then out into the glare again on either hand the valley wide and shallow glittered with heat dark green patches of rye pale young corn fallow and meadow and black pine woods spread in a dull hot diagram under a glistening sky but right in front the mountains ranged across pale blue and very still snow gleaming gently out of the deep atmosphere and towards the mountains on and on the regiment marched between the rye-fields and the meadows between the scraggy fruit-trees set regularly on either side the high road the burnished dark green rye threw on a suffocating heat the mountains drew gradually nearer and more distinct while the feet of the soldiers grew hotter sweat ran through their hair under their helmets and their knapsacks could burn no more in contact with their shoulders but seemed instead to give off a cold prickly sensation he walked on and on in silence staring at the mountains ahead that rose sheer out of the land and stood fold behind fold half earth half heaven the heaven the banner with slits of soft snow in the pale bluish peaks he could now walk almost without pain. At the start he had determined not to limp. It had made him sick to take the first steps, and during the first mile or so he had compressed his breath, and the cold drops of sweat had stood on his forehead. But he had walked it off. What were they, after all, but bruises? He had looked at them as he was getting up, deep bruises on the backs of his thighs, and since he had made his first step in the morning he had been conscious of them, till now he had a tight, hot place in his chest with suppressing the pain and holding himself in. There seemed no air when he breathed, but he walked almost lightly. The captain's hand had trembled at taking his coffee at dawn. His orderly saw it again, and he saw the fine figure of the captain wheeling on horseback at the farmhouse ahead a handsome figure in pale blue uniform with facings of scarlet and the metal gleaming on the black helmet and the sword scabbard and dark streaks of sweat coming on the silky bay horse the orderly felt he was connected with that figure moving so suddenly on horseback he followed it like a shadow mute and inevitable and damned by it and the officer was always aware of the tramp of the company behind the march of his orderly among the men the captain was a tall man of about forty, grey at the temples. He had a handsome, finely knit figure, and was one of the best horsemen in the West. His orderly, having to rub him down, admired the amazing riding muscles of his loins. For the rest, the orderly scarcely noticed the officer any more than he noticed himself. It was rarely he saw his master's face. He did not look at it. The captain had reddish-brown, stilt hair that he wore short upon his skull, his moustache was also cut short and bristly over a full brutal mouth his face was rather rugged the cheeks thin perhaps the man was the more handsome for the deep lines in his face the irritable tension of his brow which gave him the look of a man who fights with life his fair eyebrows stood bushy over light blue eyes that were always flashing with cold fire he was a prussian aristocrat haughty and overbearing 
but his mother had been a Polish countess. Having made too many gambling debts when he was young, he had ruined his prospects in the army, and remained an infantry captain. He had never married. His position did not allow of it, and no woman had ever moved him to it. His time he spent riding. Occasionally he rode one of his own horses at the races, and at the officers' club. Now and then he took himself a mistress. But after such an event he returned to duty with his brow still more tense, his eyes still more hostile and irritable. With the men, however, he was merely impersonal, though a devil when roused, so that on the whole they feared him, but had no great aversion from him. They accepted him as the inevitable. To his orderly he was at first cold and just and indifferent. He did not fuss over trifles, so that his servant knew practically nothing about him, except just what orders he would give and how he wanted them obeyed. That was quite simple. Then the change gradually came. The orderly was a youth of about twenty-two, of medium height and well-built. He had strong, heavy limbs, was swarthy, with a soft, black, young moustache. There was something altogether warm and young about him. He had firmly marked eyebrows over dark, expressionless eyes, that seemed never to have thought, only to have received life direct through his senses, and acted straight from instinct. Gradually the officer had become aware of his servant's young, vigorous, unconscious presence about him. He could not get away from the sense of the youth's person while he was in attendance. It was like a warm flame upon the older man's tense, rigid body that had become almost unliving, fixed. There was something so free and self-contained about him, and something in the young fellow's movement that made the officer aware of him. And this irritated the Prussian. He did not choose to be touched into life by his servant. He might easily have changed his man, but he did not. He now very rarely looked direct at his orderly, but kept his face averted, as if to avoid seeing him. And yet, as the young soldier moved unthinking about the apartment, the elder watched him, and would notice the movement of his strong young shoulders under the blue cloth, and bend of his neck. And it irritated him to see the soldier's young, brown, shapely peasant's hand grasp the loaf or the wine-bottle sent a flash of hate or of anger through the elder man's blood. It was not that the youth was clumsy, it was rather the blind, instinctive sureness of movement of an unhampered young animal that irritated the officer to such a degree. Once, when a bottle of wine had gone over, and the red gushed out onto the tablecloth, the officer had started up with an oath, and his eyes, bluey with fire, had held those of the confused youth for a moment. It was a shock for the young soldier. He felt something sink deeper, deeper into his soul, where nothing had ever gone before. It left him rather blank and wondering. Some of his natural completeness in himself was gone, a little uneasiness took its place. And from that time an undiscovered feeling had held between the two men. Henceforward the orderly was afraid of really meeting his master. His subconsciousness remembered those steely blue eyes and the harsh brows, and did not intend to meet them again. So he always stared past his master and avoided him. Also, in a little anxiety, he waited for the three months to have gone when his time would be up. He began to feel a constraint in the captain's presence, and the soldier, even more than the officer, wanted to be left alone in his neutrality as servant. He had served the captain for more than a year, and knew his duty. This he performed easily, as if it were natural to him, 
the officer and his commands he took for granted as he took the sun and the rain and he served as a matter of course it did not implicate him personally but now if he were going to be forced into a personal interchange with his master he would be like a wild thing caught he felt he must get away but the influence of the young soldier's being had penetrated through the officer's stiffened discipline and perturbed the man in him he however was a gentleman with long fine hands and cultivated movements and was not going to allow such a thing as the stirring of his innate self he was a man of passionate temper who had always kept himself suppressed occasionally there had been a duel an outburst before the soldiers he knew himself to be always on the point of breaking out but he kept himself hard to the idea of the service whereas the young soldier seemed to live out his warm full nature to give it off in his very movements which had a certain zest such as wild animals have in free movement and this irritated the officer more and more in spite of himself the captain could not regain his neutrality of feeling towards his orderly nor could he leave the man alone in spite of himself he watched him gave him sharp orders tried to take up as much of his time as possible sometimes he flew into a rage with the young soldier and bullied him then the orderly shut himself off as it were out of earshot and waited with sullen flushed face for the end of the noise these words never pierced to his intelligence he made himself protectively impervious to the feelings of his master he had a scar on his left thumb a deep seam going across the knuckle the officer had long suffered from it and wanted to do something to it still it was there ugly and brutal on the young brown hand at last the captain's reserve gave way one day as the orderly was smoothing out the tablecloth the officer pinned down his thumb with a pencil asking how did you come by that the young man winced and drew back at attention a wood-axe herr helpman he answered the officer waited for further explanation none came the orderly went about his duties the elder man was sullenly angry his servant avoided him and the next day he had to use all his will-power to avoid seeing the scarred thumb he wanted to get hold of it and a hot flame ran in his blood he knew his servant would soon be free and would be glad as yet the soldier had held himself off from the elder man the captain grew madly irritable he could not rest when the soldier was away and when he was present he glared at him with tormented eyes he hated those fine black brows over the unmeaning dark eyes he was infuriated by the free movement of the handsome limbs which no military discipline could make stiff and he became harsh and cruelly bullying using contempt and satire the young soldier only grew more mute and expressionless what cattle were you bred by that you can't keep straight eyes look me in the eyes when i speak to you and the soldier turned his dark eyes to the other's face but there was no sight in them he stared with the slightest possible cast holding back his sight perceiving the blue of his master's eyes but receiving no look from them and the elder man went pale and his reddish eyebrows twitched he gave his order barrenly once he flung a heavy military glove into the young soldier's face then he had the satisfaction of seeing the black eyes flare up into his own like a blaze when straw is thrown on a fire and he had laughed with a little tremor and a sneer but there were only two months more the youth instinctively tried to keep himself intact 
he tried to serve the officer as if the latter were an abstract authority and not a man. All his instinct was to avoid personal contact, even definite hate. But in spite of himself the hate grew, responsive to the officer's passion. However, he put it in the background. When he had left the army he could dare acknowledge it. By nature he was active, and had many friends. He thought what amazing good fellows they were. But without knowing it he was alone. Now this solitariness was intensified. It would carry him through his term. But the officer seemed to be going irritably insane, and the youth was deeply frightened. The soldier had a sweetheart, a girl from the mountains, independent and primitive. The two walked together rather silently. He went with her, not to talk, but to have his arm round her, and for the physical contact. This eased him, made it easier for him to ignore the captain for he could rest with her held fast against his chest, and she, in some unspoken fashion, was there for him. They loved each other. The captain perceived it, and was mad with irritation. He kept the young man engaged all the evenings long, and took pleasure in the dark look that came on his face. Occasionally the eyes of the two men met, those of the younger sullen and dark, doggedly unalterable, those of the elder sneering with restless contempt. The officer tried hard not to admit the passion that had got hold of him. He would not know that his feeling for his orderly was anything but that of a man incensed by his stupid, perverse servant. So keeping quite justified and conventional in his consciousness, he let the other thing run on. His nerves, however, were suffering. At last he slung the end of a belt in his servant's face. When he saw the youth start back, the pain tears in his eyes and the blood on his mouth, he had felt at once a thrill of deep pleasure and of shame. But this, he acknowledged to himself, was a thing he had never done before. The fellow was too exasperating. His own nerves must be going to pieces. He went away for some days with a woman. It was a mockery of pleasure. He simply did not want the woman, but he stayed on for his time. At the end of it he came back in an agony of irritation, torment, and misery. He rode all the evening, then came straight in to supper. His orderly was out. The officer sat with his long, fine hands lying on the table, perfectly still, and all his blood seemed to be corroding. At last his servant entered. He watched the strong, easy young figure, the fine eyebrows, the thick black hair. In a week's time the youth had got back his old well-being. The hands of the officer twitched and seemed to be full of mad flame. The young man stood at attention, unmoving, shut on. The meal went in silence, but the orderly seemed eager. He made a clatter with the dishes. "'Are you in a hurry?' asked the officer, watching the intent warm face of his servant. The other did not reply. "'Will you answer my question?' said the captain. "'Yes, sir,' replied the orderly, standing with his pile of deep army plates. The captain waited, looked at him, then asked again, are you in a hurry? Yes, sir, came the answer that sent a flash through the listener. For what? I was going out, sir. I want you this evening. There was a moment's hesitation. The officer had a curious stiffness of countenance. Yes, sir, replied the servant in his throat. I want you tomorrow evening also. In fact, you may consider your evenings occupied unless I give you leave. The mouth with the young moustache set close. "'Yes, sir,' answered the orderly, loosening his lips for a moment. He again turned to the door. 
And why have you a piece of pencil in your ear? The orderly hesitated, then continued on his way without answering. He set the plates in a pile outside the door, took the stump of pencil from his ear, and put it in his pocket. He had been copying a verse for his sweetheart's birthday card. He returned to finish clearing the table. The officer's eyes were dancing. He had a little, eager smile. "'Why have you a piece of pencil in your ear?' he asked. The orderly took his hands full of dishes. His master was standing near the great green stove, a little smile on his face, his chin thrust forward. When the young soldier saw him, his heart suddenly ran hot. He felt blind. Instead of answering, he turned dazedly to the door. As he was crouching to set down the dishes, he was pitched forward by a kick from behind. The pots went in a stream down the stairs. He clung to the pillar of the banisters. And as he was rising, he was kicked heavily again, and again, so that he clung sickly to the post for some moments. His master had gone swiftly into the room and closed the door. The maid-servant downstairs looked up the staircase and made a mocking face at the crockery disaster. The officer's heart was plunging. He poured himself a glass of wine, part of which he spilled on the floor, and gulped the remainder, leaning against the cool green stove. He heard his man collecting the dishes from the stairs. Pale, as if intoxicated, he waited. The servant entered again. The captain's heart gave a pang as of pleasure, seeing the young fellow bewildered and uncertain on his feet, with pain. Schöner, he said. The soldier was a little slower in coming to attention. Yes, sir. The youth stood before him with pathetic young moustache and fine eyebrows very distinct on his forehead of dark marble. I asked you a question. Yes, sir. The officer's tone bit like acid. Why had you a pencil in your ear? Again the servant's heart ran hot, and he could not breathe. With dark, strained eyes he looked at the officer as if fascinated, and he stood there, sturdily planted, unconscious. The withering smile came into the captain's eyes, and he lifted his foot. "'I... I forgot it, sir,' panted the soldier, his dark eyes fixed on the other man's dancing blue ones. "'What was it doing there?' He saw the young man's breast heaving as he made an effort for words. "'I had been writing.' "'Writing what?' Again the soldier looked him up and down. The officer could hear him panting. The smile came into the blue eyes. The soldier worked his dry throat but could not speak. Suddenly the smile lit like a name on the officer's face, and a kick came heavily against the orderly's thigh. The youth moved a pace sideways. His face went dead, with two black staring eyes. "'Well?' said the officer. The orderly's mouth had gone dry, and his tongue rubbed in it as on dry brown paper. He worked his throat. The officer raised his foot. The servant went stiff. "'Some poetry, sir,' came the crackling, unrecognizable sound of his voice. "'Poetry? What poetry?' asked the captain, with a sickly smile. Again there was the working in the throat. The captain's heart had suddenly gone down heavily, and he stood sick and tired. "'For my girl, sir,' he heard the dry, inhuman sound. "'Oh,' he said, turning away. "'Clear the table.' "'Click,' went the soldier's throat. Then again, click, and then the hail articulate. "'Yes, sir.' The young soldier was gone, looking old and walking heavily. The officer, left alone, held himself rigid, 
to prevent himself from thinking. His instinct warned him that he must not think. Deep inside him was the intense gratification of his passion, still working powerfully. Then there was a counteraction, a horrible breaking down of something inside him, a whole agony of reaction. He stood there for an hour, motionless, a chaos of sensations, but rigid with a will to keep blank his consciousness, to prevent his mind grasping. And he held himself so until the worst of the stress had passed, when he began to drink, drank himself to an intoxication, till he slept obliterated. When he woke in the morning he was shaken to the base of his nature, but he had fought off the realization of what he had done. He had prevented his mind from taking it in, had suppressed it along with his instincts, and the conscious man had nothing to do with it. He felt only as after a bout of intoxication, weak, but the affair itself all dim and not to be recovered. Of the drunkenness of his passion he successfully refused remembrance, and when his orderly appeared with coffee the officer assumed the same self he had had the morning before. He refused the event of the past night, denied it had ever been, and was successful in his denial. He had not done any such thing, not he himself. Whatever there might be lay at the door of a stupid, insubordinate servant. The orderly had gone about in a stupor all the evening. He drank some beer because he was parched, but not much. The alcohol made his feeling come back, and he could not bear it. He was dulled, as if nine-tenths of the ordinary man in him were inert. He crawled about, disfigured. Still, when he thought of the kicks, he went sick, and when he thought of the threat of more kicking in the room afterwards, his heart went hot and faint, and he panted, remembering the one that had come. He had been forced to say, for my girl. He was much too done even to want to cry. His mouth hung slightly open like an idiot's. He felt vacant and wasted. So he wandered at his work, painfully and very slowly and clumsily, fumbling blindly with the brushes and finding it difficult, when he sat down, to summon the energy to move again. His limbs, his jaw, were slack and nerveless. But he was very tired. He got to bed at last and slept inert, relaxed, in a sleep that was rather stupor than slumber a dead night of stupefaction, shot through with gleams of anguish. In the morning were the manoeuvres. But he woke even before the bugle sounded. The painful ache in his chest, the dryness of his throat, the awful steady feeling of misery made his eyes come awake and dreary at once. He knew without thinking what had happened, and he knew that the day had come again when he must go on with his round. The last bit of darkness was being pushed out of the room. He would have to move his inert body and go on. He was so young and had known so little trouble that he was bewildered. He only wished it would stay night so that he could lie still, covered up by the darkness. And yet nothing would prevent the day from coming, nothing would save him from having to get up and saddle the captain's horse and make the captain's coffee. It was there, inevitable, and then he thought it was impossible. Yet they would not leave him free. He must go and take the coffee to the captain. He was too stunned to understand it. He only knew it was inevitable. Inevitable however long he lay inert. At last, after heaving at himself, for he seemed to be a mass of inertia, he got up. But he had to force every one of his movements from behind with his will. He felt lost and dazed and helpless. 
Then he clutched hold of the bed, the pain was so keen. And looking at his thighs, he saw the darker bruises on his swarthy flesh, and he knew that if he pressed one of his fingers on one of the bruises, he should faint. But he did not want to faint. He did not want anybody to know. No one should ever know. It was between him and the captain. There were only the two people in the world now, himself and the captain. Slowly, economically, he got dressed and forced himself to walk. Everything was obscure except just what he had his hands on. But he managed to get through his work. The very pain revived his dull senses. The worst remained yet. He took the tray and went up to the captain's room. The officer, pale and heavy, sat at the table. The orderly, as he saluted, felt himself put out of existence. He stood still for a moment, submitting to his own nullification. Then he gathered himself, seemed to regain himself, and then the captain began to grow vague, unreal, and the young soldier's heart beat up. He clung to this situation that the captain did not exist, so that he himself might live. But when he saw his officer's hand tremble as he took the coffee, he felt everything falling, shattered, and he went away feeling as if he himself were coming to pieces, disintegrated. And when the captain was there on horseback, giving orders, while he himself stood, with rifle and knapsack, sick with pain, he felt as if he must shut his eyes, as if he must shut his eyes on everything. It was only the long agony of marching with a parched throat that filled him with one single sleep-heavy intention, to save himself. End of section 1